Hello, and welcome back to Resurfacing. This is the fourth episode of the show. My name is Avalon, and I'll be your guide. Thanks for listening. Archive podcast, an artist and episode, anecdotal approaches. The tuxedos are black, the gowns are many colors, the hair is larger than life, and the applause is deafening. It's the winter of 1985 and the 27th Grammy Awards ceremony. All the biggest stars of an era and their people packed like Fruit Loops in a box into an L.A. auditorium. Egos run wild, and the American people sit glued like tar to their TVs, waiting to see who gets to take home a shiny, golden gramophone. While to no one's surprise, legends like Prince, Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, and Emmylou Harris held some of the evening's highest honors, In the obscure category of best ethnic or traditional folk recording, it was a bit of a different story. Walking slowly to the stage to claim her award was a somewhat frail 90-year-old woman, originally from North Carolina, whose fame and name had only gained prominence in the elder years of her life. Smiling and speaking clearly into the microphone to the attentive audience, she joyously spoke. Thank you. I only wish I had my guitar so I could play a song for you all. It was a rare and beautiful moment of recognition for someone like her, an ultra-talented black woman who had grown up in the southern United States in the midst of Jim Crow, born before the turn of the century, only a few short decades after the end of the Civil War. Hers is a story of grace and perseverance, of joy and humility, and ultimately, of a boundless faith only matched by the far-reaching influence of her songs. It's a story that will lead us into the very heartbeat of American folk music. This here is the story of Elizabeth Cotton. Thank you. 
So this episode is arguably about the most recognized or celebrated artist that I'm going to be spotlighting on the show. After all, she did win a Grammy. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's not really the point of this, is it? And I could be wrong, but I've gathered that many people, especially young people, are not familiar with Elizabeth Cotton. So I think that that's a good enough reason and is in line with what I'm generally trying to do here which is to bring artists' stories to the foreground. What's even more, her life and career follows one of the key themes of resurfacing, which is what I'd describe as unusual or unexpected career trajectories. And lastly, it's that it carries with it the core sentiment of doing it yourself. But enough justifications. I want to jump right in. Let's start at the beginning. Elizabeth Cotton maiden name Elizabeth Nevels, and nicknamed Libba, was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in the year 1893, the youngest of five kids. The story goes that she started picking up her older brother's banjo around the age of seven, and with no one willing and able to teach her, she had to figure out how to play all on her own. Being left-handed, she naturally flipped the neck of the instrument to her right, meaning that she plucked the strings with her left hand, and fretted with her right. Because it was of course strong for a right-handed player, the strings were thus upside down, meaning that she played the high strings with her thumb and the low ones with her index finger. This unusual technique led her to develop a unique alternating bass playing style, which would later become known as cotton picking, spelt with an E, like her last name. A couple years later, she saved up enough money to buy her own acoustic guitar. It costed three seventy-five, which would be around one hundred and five or one hundred ten U.S. dollars nowadays. She took to playing that Sears and Roebuck guitar hours on end, and even came to writing her own songs. In her words, she said, "So Mama bought it. To her sorrow, poor thing didn't get any more rest. <laughs> I was banging it night and day, playing it all the time. Mama would raise up and say." Put that thing down and go to bed. I said, Mom, I'm learning a new tune. I said, just as soon as I learn this, let me play a little more. Mama would turn on and go to sleep. And I'd get a chance to play 15 or 20 minutes long, because she'd go back to sleep. At the age of 11, she wrote what would, a half a century later, become one of the most subtly influential songs of the 20th century the first one you heard, called Freight Train. Here's a little audio clip of her explaining where the inspiration for that song came from. And it, it was that choo-choo-choo, chicka-chicka-chicka-chicka-chicka-chicka. 
and I'd go to sleep hearing that the rest of the night. So I guess that gave me a, a mind to write something about the freight train. Life would increasingly come between Libba and her music, working as a maid from age 13 on, marrying at 17, having a daughter, moving around the eastern United States, and perhaps most significantly, the increasing pressure from deacons at her church, who openly dissuaded her from making secular music, especially anything adjacent to the blues. A very religious woman herself, she would later in life still declare that with music, quote, I don't see where there's so much sin in it. Other than the very occasional church performance, which she managed to pull off, she essentially put down the guitar for about 25 years of her life. Now, I just want to take a second here to talk some context. I think it's important to remember how much has changed since those days, and how many decades of development in music, both culturally and in terms of industry, have occurred. The idea of a potentially lucrative music career really didn't exist in the same way that it later would with the post-World War II economic boom and resulting rise of youth culture or anything like how we might think of one today. Of course, advancements in music recording and playback technology played a massive part in that as well. From what I understand, the first vinyl LPs were only made commercially available in the latter half of the 1940s, with artists like Frank Sinatra releasing music on historic major labels like Columbia Records. The gramophone was invented in only 1887, a handful of years before Cotton's birth, but listening to recorded music, starting really with the rise of radio broadcasting, as well as physical spaces to dance, like juke joints and honky-tonks, was not anywhere near ubiquitous for decades to come. What this meant was that, by and large, music simply didn't exist in the minds of people as something beyond the live format. This was essentially the only way music was experienced and consumed. And obviously this is just the way that music has always been, for all of human existence, up until the last little hundred years or so, with all the technological advances that have so dramatically reshaped and supplemented the ways in which we consume, create, and even perceive or think about music. During the Reconstruction era, following the U.S. Civil War, it was really the first time that African-American musicians in the South could, to an extent, travel freely and try to earn a living that way. In Elizabeth Cotton's adolescence, the idea of the singer-songwriter archetype, more likely thought of as a bluesman or a songster, was associated much more with vagrancy, vagabondism, homelessness and sometimes poverty as compared with later popular views, which tend to center the narrative of the rich and famous ones who, quote, made it. One of the traditions that kind of brought African-American musicians into this new, quote, reconstruction era was that of the songster, which interestingly enough developed as accompaniment to what were known as medicine shows. Basically, traveling merchants who sold salves, ointments, and elixirs 
would hire musicians, often a singer and a fiddler or a banjo player, to draw a crowd into a public space by singing traditional folk songs, ballads, and minstrel songs. There were black and white musicians on this circuit, but mostly black, who often shared the same highly traditional repertoire that focused on heroes, myths, and legends. These songsters were often contrasted with blues singers, who were sometimes seen as more innovative or authentic for writing original songs and singing about relatable emotions like love and heartbreak and the struggles of ordinary folks. But now, more and more, experts see this distinction as somewhat arbitrary, because the reality was that many of the most notable and, quote, innovative old-time blues singers from a little later down the line Names like Mississippi John Hurt, Muddy Waters, and Robert Johnson performed a wide variety of songs live, and were in many ways songsters themselves. So hopefully that helps place us deeper into the world that Elizabeth Cotton was born into and influenced by, where melodies, rhythms, and lyrics floated around, being emulated, performed, and re-performed in different settings by different artists a slowly evolving, shared tradition of blues, ballads, and more. What's amazing to me is how she was able to develop a complex but familiar-sounding style and write great melodies all on her own. No mentors, no teachers, just an upside-down and backwards guitar. But sadly, it wasn't until much, much later that that talent would be appreciated by the public. It took more than just talent for Libba. It took time and more than a little bit of chance. After her daughter Lily got married, Libba divorced her husband Frank and moved with her daughter and son-in-law's family to the D.C. area. On an ordinary day, while working temporarily in a grocery store, a chance encounter occurred which would unknowingly send Libba down her musical path once again. A young girl was wandering around the store lost, and Miss Cotton kindly calmed her down and helped her to find her mother. That young girl was none other than Peggy Seeger and the mother, Ruth Crawford Seeger, both of the absurdly prolific musical family, the Seegers. Ruth offered Miss Cotton a job as a maid for their family, seeing as the children were so taken with her, and she accepted. Now, I imagine everyone has, if nothing more, heard the name Pete Seeger. But if you're not aware, there are so many notable people from that lineage, and admittedly, the family tree is a bit hard to keep track of. So very briefly, here's a quick genealogy of the most relevant Seeger family members for our purposes. At the top of it, you got Charles Seeger, who was a musicologist, composer, and a teacher, and his two siblings, Alan, who was a poet, and Elizabeth, who was a teacher and author. Charles had two families because he remarried. 
His first wife was the violinist Constance Edsenseeger, and together they had three children, one of whom was by far the most famous Seeger of all, Pete, who was a major force in the folk and protest song movement of the 1960s. Pete's wife was Toshi Seeger, who was an environmental activist and filmmaker, and one of their children was ceramic artist Micah Seeger, whose son is the folk singer Tao Rodriguez Seeger. So that's one side of the family, starting back with Charles Seeger. The other side of the family is all of the descendants of Charles and his second wife, the aforementioned Ruth Crawford Seeger. Ruth was a modernist composer and folklorist, and the first woman to be awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship, which allowed her to travel and live abroad in Berlin and Paris. She's an incredibly overlooked 20th century composer and a fascinating character, and I wish I could spend more time on her story. Honestly, I could probably do a whole show or whole series on everyone from this family, and it would be rich and interesting, I think, but alas. Anyways, Charles and Ruth's children were Mike, Peggy, Barbara, and Penny Seeger, all singers and songwriters in their own right. So that's the minimum I feel like I can mention just to kind of get the point across that this family had a lot going on in terms of music. And I'll finally just say that it's worth noting that the older generation were also close with Alan Lomax, the famed ethnographer who's credited for recording thousands of singers across North America, especially in the South, and whose works are preserved primarily by the Smithsonian Institute. They were also close with members of the Carter family, who, among other things, are credited with developing and honing one of the basic picking styles at the root of the American folk music tradition, Carter picking. Here's a good example of Carter picking, with Mother Maybelle Carter and Johnny Cash performing the song Wildwood Flower Live. So Elizabeth Cotton began working for the Seegers, meaning Charles and Ruth, helping take care of their four children, and at first no one had any idea of her musical talents. As you might imagine, there were a number of guitars and other musical instruments around the house, and Elizabeth would occasionally pick one up when no one was around. Not so different than when she started playing music for the first time, sneaking into her brother's room while he was out of the house. But then one day, when she thought she was all alone, and by the way, this is around five or six years after she started working for the Seeger family, Peggy heard her playing and called her brother Mike to come into the room and hear the music. Peggy says to me, what was the song you playing? I says, Freight Train. She said, would you teach me how to play that song? I said, certainly. So from that, I started learning Michael and Peggy. Nights at dinner time, I cook dinner and put my dinner on the table. 
And that's about all the work I'd have to do. The kids would clear the table, wash my dishes, and tell me to sit down and play French fries. Peggy, who was a young adult by the late 50s, had gone to tour the UK and played Freight Train at one of her concerts. Shortly after, something very intriguing happened. An English singer made a hit out of the song in Britain, which sadly Cotton initially received no credit for. But everyone knew it was by a mysterious American songwriter, and what this did was create a bit of a demand for her music, in addition to her beginning to play small concerts. By around 1957, Elizabeth and Mike, who had begun recording some of her songs, had completed her first album, which would be released by Folkways Records the following year. The record is usually referred to as Folk Songs and Instrumentals with Guitar, or Freight Train and Other North Carolina Folk Songs and Tunes, but I'll mention it was originally entitled Negro Folk Songs and Tunes. So this was the start of Cotton's professional career, and by 1960, well into her own 60s, she had become a mainstay, a bona fide superstar of the perfectly timed folk music revival. See, just as the Seeger family saw Cotton as a treasured, authentic, true folk musician, the many middle-class young people of the blossoming hippie generation did as well. This was an era in history where so many new folk singers were rising to stardom, but there was a somewhat clear-cut delineation between so-called authentic folk musicians and folk as a genre or aesthetic. I find it interesting because we often look back on the 60s and think of it as a golden age of folk music, and it as having been a kind of authentic musical form, but it's a lot more complicated, divided, and nuanced than that. The core of it was, in some sense, emulation, with artists for the most part playing traditional covers, possibly mixed in with some originals too. Even the most prolific writers, such as Bob Dylan, were from the outset no exception to this rule. And even the most iconic originals of 1960s folk, songs like Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind, were heavily, heavily influenced by the traditionals that they started out with. After all, it was called folk revival. It's also very interesting because a very similar dichotomy between folk music as a vehicle for storytelling, or traditions, versus folk music as a genre or an aesthetic surrounding things like acoustic instruments and raw vocal delivery continues to this day. Maybe the reality is that all of these things have contributed to what folk music is. Now, Elizabeth Cotton, opposed to these new young rising singers, was mostly sharing her so-called authentic and original songs that in that very moment became traditionals, and gained the status of classic, with Freight Train, especially in that time, but still to this day, often being one of the first songs that people would learn on the guitar. Here's me trying to play a little bit of Freight Train after looking through a nice little book I found at an antique store called Instrumental Techniques of American Folk Guitar. If nothing else, it highlights how great of a player Cotton was even more.
Elizabeth Cotton spent the last few decades of her life touring the United States and beyond. A few of her most notable performances included appearances at the Newport Folk Festival and the Smithsonian Festival of American Folklife. She even performed for the then-president John F. Kennedy before his assassination in 1963. Folkways Records released another two albums from her in the late 60s, entitled Shake Sugary and When I'm Gone. By this time, Libba, inspired by her newfound successes, had begun writing new material. One notable tune was the title track, Shake Sugary, which is a really fascinating song because of how it was collaboratively written with none other than, well, it's better for her to explain it, so let's just do that. Sugary is a song me and my eight children made that song when they was about five, six, and seven, eight years old. Maybe eight or nine. And we put them to, I put my kids to bed. I was taking care of eight, my great, great grandchildren. And I sent them to school. I washed for them. I cooked for them. Their parents worked and I'd taken care of them. So when I put them in bed, I'd go up and play my guitar. I never have time to do it in the daytime because I was busy doing something for them all the time. And um, by me doing that, I'd go up and play and we'd get to singing. So we just started making verses. I don't know how it come up. We just said we're going to make a song. So we started, my oldest, my oldest great-great-grandson, the first verse is his, and the next one is mine, and then from that on they just went. Each child got a verse. Such a beautiful story, and something that really ties in with the more traditionally rooted concept of what folk music is or could be. Just the idea of older and younger generations of a family creating something new together slowly over time. Like an ever-evolving tradition anchored in collective memory and creativity. Here's part of the album recording of Shake Sugary, where one of Libba's descendants, Brenda Joyce Evans, who would later go on to sing in the Motown band The Undisputed Truth, is singing. Everything. 
Elizabeth's final album, Elizabeth Cotton Live, was released in 1984 and would win a Grammy for Best Ethnic or Traditional Folk Recording the following year. In a way, it really is her best work, or maybe just my favorite, because she plays a wide variety of tunes from her catalog and really shows off her personality with all of the wonderful storytelling she does in between songs, as well as the crowd participation and group singing. It's just very, very wholesome. I think this has got another tune. It's so nice you sit here and someone tune your instruments and bring them to you. <laughs> you don't have to sit here and start to break and strain like I did on the banjo, you know. Now this is called Vestipool. So I guess you could say that the story of Elizabeth Cotton had a happy ending. And in a lot of tangible ways, it's true. She was credited, acknowledged, and appreciated for her work and her contributions to American music at large. Her songs have been covered by a huge number of well-known artists, people like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Jerry Garcia, Taj Mahal, and Mike and Peggy Seeger, just to name a few. In the mid-80s, she was awarded a Heritage Fellowship by the National Endowment for the Arts and, of course, a Grammy Award in 1985. She was featured in I Dream a World, a documentary about black women who helped shape the United States of America, and in Syracuse, New York, where she spent the last years of her life before she passed away in 1987 at the age of 94, there's a small park, Libba Cotton Grove, named in her honor. I don't want to spoil this positive note, I really don't, but I just think that it's important for us to be critical of that sort of a simplistic narrative, and to try to get some sort of an understanding of why things may have happened the way they did. And in a sense it comes back to the central matter of what folk music is. There's that adage that people always want what they can't have, 
And I think there's some truth to that with the many middle-class, mostly white college kids in the 1960s who were just enthralled with artists like Elizabeth Cotton. This may have also played a role with the Seegers. And thinking back to the older generation's relationship with the likes of Alan Lomax, who I mentioned earlier, it makes a lot of sense. Just as in the field of anthropology, ethnomusicology has oftentimes been criticized for the way it treats its so-called exotic subjects, and for gatekeeping what is or isn't to be considered authentic. And the truth is, white America has always been obsessed with black America, and has often wielded its power to exploit black artists and profit off them. Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily what happened with Elizabeth Cotton, I'm really not in a position to make that claim. The point I'm trying to make is that it's important for us to see her story in light of these bigger systemic factors and histories. If it weren't for young people with buying power and interest to support her, she wouldn't have had a career because it just wouldn't have been feasible as it was not for the majority of her life. And without the Seegers, with all of their cultural capital, connections, privilege, and resources, she also probably wouldn't have had the successes that she did. So to me, that kind of an obsession with perceived authenticity, like I mentioned before, does play a role in this story. And while I do personally believe Cotton to be a symbol of authenticity in some sense, it's important to remind ourselves not to fall into a trap and to always be critical of what that means. The truth is, it's always hard to know someone's true intentions, But I like to think that at the center of the actions of those who helped support and push Miss Cotton was not a fetishization, but a true, earnest appreciation of her mastery and her spirit. Her guitar playing is truly one of a kind. The way she would play a melody, then repeat it with the rhythm slightly pushed back into the measure, going in circles and creating a landscape of sound that might seem simple at a glance, but in reality has a very high level of difficulty to pull off, and is incredibly nuanced and deep upon further inspection. The way she told stories and made people laugh while fiddling around to give a sonic backdrop to the narrative of her anecdotes. The way her energy, personality, and perseverance has inspired generations of artists, young girls, and everyday people. Just as she'd unapologetically tell you, in the end, the only person who deserves any real credit is Elizabeth Cotton herself. To end the show, here's the final song from her live album, the aptly titled, Till We Meet Again. Till we meet Sing that till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet, till we meet, till we meet, till we to go 
I got to go. Thanks so much for listening to episode 4 of Resurfacing. This episode was produced on the island of Jojage, or Montreal, in April of 2019. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, feel free to email me at resurfacingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram at resurfacingpodcast, so you can follow me there if you like. My name is Avalon. Thanks for listening. Bye.